Good morning, Redeemer. It is good to be serving you today, which is good. Today's text comes from the book of James, chapter 4. It'll be verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bible with you, I would ask that you read it along with me. I'm going to read it out loud again. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Listen carefully, and read along with me if you would. For these are the very words of God. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, Lord. Why? He will exalt you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Um, We ask that you would uh, bless the uh, proclamation of it. I ask that you would help us to understand what's going on in this passage, and that uh, I would just be a clear window that would get out of the way and let your light shine through. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand these things, help us to uh, put it into our hearts so that it can go from there into the rest of our body, and so that we can serve you faithfully as your people. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, it is a blessing to be back here today. Um, seems like we've been kind of in and out for the last couple weeks. Um, a few weeks ago, for instance, Rachel and I were in the Portland area visiting your sister church down there, Reformation Covenant Church. Um, we were hosted down there, and they were really great. It was awesome to meet them all. And while we were there, uh, we met... Well, while we were in the Portland area, we sort of made a bit of a trip out of it, and uh, we ended up meeting an award-winning winemaker. Uh, We went to his vineyard and tried some of his stuff. Uh, His name is Andrew Beckham, which is my name. Uh, He's from the Arkansas Beckhams, I guess. And what's funny is the Texas Beckhams were going to be there the next week after us. Um, But the cool thing about Andrew Beckham, is that he makes these big custom terracotta pots in his workshop. They're about four feet tall. They're probably, I don't know, three or four feet across. And he ages the wine in them instead of aging the wine in barrels. And it has this really uh, unique flavor. Not a lot of people do that, especially in the Western Hemisphere. Um, He's one of the only guys. And it occurred to me while I was preparing for this sermon uh, that the book of James is a lot lot like that. Uh, It's about 
maturing in a vessel according to how the thing should be. Um, there are certain things that you have to do for the wine to be good. There are certain things that Andrew Beckham has to do for the wine to be good. Just like there are certain things that we as believers have to do in order for our faith to be good. Now, this isn't to say that you know, we're justified by works or anything like that, so let's dispel that. But once we've been justified, what do we do? And that's the question that the book of James answers over and over again. I've been justified. Now what? So it functions in many ways as New Testament wisdom literature. Wisdom is about the maturing that happens according to Christ within the boundaries that he set in his law. Micah said that Proverbs is, or Micah said that the book of James is, it's like Proverbs steeped in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's New Testament wisdom literature. The point is that development, aging, maturing, all these things are inevitable. The question is, are we aging like milk or like wine? There, have to think, there are things that you have to do for your faith to mature. His audience is a, James's audience is a group of Christians in a wide region. They're the elect exiles, a diaspora of the 12 tribes. He says in uh, the very first book, or the very first chapter in verse 1, it's not a local church. It's a, it's a group of Christians spread out across a large geography. They're likely a, a, a bunch of background, a Jewish background believers who were in Jerusalem when the persecution started. And then, you know, when persecution started in Jerusalem, like we read in Acts, Stephen gets stoned, things like that happen. They're scattered across the land. Persecution happens, and the people have gone scattered. They go out into the land. So he's talking to a broad range of these Christians who need to see the implications of living for Christ in their actions, not just in their beliefs, because they're Christians. They're members of James's church, more than likely. They've been justified. But how do they live? Well, the book of James, of course, is, as you probably well know, uh, it says things like, be doers of the word and not just hearers. Help those in orphans. Endure trials. Be crushed like a grip. Count it all joy, because that's how the maturing happens. Chapter 3 is about taming the tongue. And today's chapter, or today's you know, passage, is from chapter 4. And it's addressing quarreling that's among them. So he's addressing this problem. He's showing them the root cause, and then he's pointing them to the solution. The problem, of course, is the visible disunity that they have, all this quarreling and bickering that they're going through. The cause is that they're actually opposed to God. He calls them adulteresses, you might remember. And the solution is that God is full of grace, and he's merciful to forgive those who would submit to him. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you, it says in verse 10. That verse is the key to this whole passage. It comes at the end. All this law, all this condemnation piles up, and then you hear the key in the very end. And through that, we we know that God shows grace to the worst of sinners by lifting them up when they fall at his feet. So we then, we who are in Christ, must draw near to our gracious God, who will lift us up on the last day. That's sort of the, you know, 30,000 feet overview of this text. But I wanted to take it maybe a few verses at a time in order to take a close look to see what he actually says. So uh, the characterization of the problem happens in verses 1 through 5. 
James talks about the, vis- the, the visible disunity that this church, these group of Christians have. He tells them that they are constantly fighting because their sinful passions are warring within them. He's speaking to Christians who have mixed motives, the kind of people who will bless God in one moment and curse their neighbor in the next. He's already mentioned something like this in the third chapter previously, um, that they're the kind of people who will bless God in one moment and curse their neighbor in the next. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this man. And we see that sort of thing around us, maybe not in our own local church, but certainly in the Christians around us, uh, maybe, within our, maybe within ourselves, but not necessarily. Um, and so I think a good example of that is, you know, down south. I'll pick on the south because I'm from there and you're not. Uh, down south, you have the Baptists over here, the Methodists over there, Presbyterians up the road, the non-denominational megachurch somewhere. Their signs are everywhere, but they're somewhere. You have all these people spread out. And a faithful, kingdom-minded Christian could work with anyone from any of these places, assuming that they're, you know, orthodox churches. The kingdom-minded Christian could work with anyone from these churches. But would he? It seems like he should. Do they even pray for each other? Down south... uh, the disunity is almost invisible. It's more of a cold war. They don't really talk to each other. But in James's day, it's even worse. They are talking to each other. They're quarreling and fighting all the time. They have visible disunity. How much worse is that than invisible disunity? And you have to wonder why all these Christians are siloed up in James's day. They've lost sight of their mission. That's why. They've lost sight of the objective to disciple their neighbors, to live with one another, and to bear with one another. They've been split into factions according to their own preferences. And you think about that. Screwtape reminds Wormwood in Screwtape Letters about the the usefulness of party churches, the usefulness of factions. If your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. The real fun is on purely indifferent things. Candles and cloths. What psalter are we using? Who gets baptized? What do we do with the new space? Things like that. And so this is a problem that the constituency of Christians in James's day faced. It's people who were spread out from Jerusalem. They were bickering, they were setting up factions, and they were even committing murder. Literally. You see these people. You hear about their problems. You get this idea of what they're like. It seems like they have a lot of strong households with a lot of strong convictions and this very independent-minded, in-it-to-win-it mindset. And this is demonstrated by the fact that they were out there living their lives. They were maintaining the faith in the face of persecution. But strong households an independent mindset, strong convictions can sometimes cause issues. See, these people, their desires were frustrated. The problem on the outside, their visible disunity, is actually manifesting the deeper problem. The visible disunity, the factions, the murder, 
are surface-level problems, James says. These are surface-level problems. Well, we should have better unity. We shouldn't have these factions. We shouldn't murder people. If James just addressed it that way, everyone could agree and say, hmm, that's right, we should be unified. But he doesn't say it that way because James is these people's spiritual leader. He's an apostle, the meddler. So he starts meddling. He says, you desire and you don't have, and so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. Even if you did ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly, and you spend it on your passions. You're ugly, rude, and selfish. You're culpable. That is what James is saying to these people. He is laying them out. Now, they may have, they may have been saying something like, well, we just want social stability. We just want religious freedom. We just want a healthy Roman republic. We just want our strong families. Well, whatever it was, they wanted it from their own hands, and they didn't want it from the hands of God. And when they didn't get it, they lost their minds. They put their eggs in this basket, and then the fox came. They built their house on the sand, and the storm blew it over. And then they wanted to blame the fox. They wanted to blame the storm for all of their problems, for their visible disunity. Well, we're fragmented because of persecution, might have said. But James is ruthless in pointing out their culpability. They are culpable. They are spiritual adulteresses. He says this in verse 4. Now, if you're familiar with the, uh, the history of the Old Testament, Israel's history, you'll remember that God called them spiritual adulteresses over and over again because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry. For instance, in Jeremiah, he says, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. He tells Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So all these Christians, they're going after different goals, they're forming their different factions, they're going after different goods, because they have different gods. They have fellowship, with the world. They have friendship with the world. Uh, the, I'm a first-year seminary student, so I have to say what the Greek word is. The Greek word is philos, and it means love. Um, they're having fellowship with the world. They're having philos with the world. They're making love with the things of the world. That's their problem. They're joining themselves to these things in an unnatural way, the way that an adulteress joins herself in an unnatural way to someone other than her husband. It's a covenant violation. Now, the benefits of the new covenant, you know, the one that Christ inaugurated, the one that he ruled over, the one that we're in, the benefits of the covenant do not include sinless perfection right now on this side of glory. Once you profess Christ. That's promised one day, but not yet. But what's promised for today is that in Christ, we have God help in growing in faithfulness and obedience. We're not promised full glorification here and now, but we are promised sanctification on the basis of our justification. These people should be growing in works. They should be maturing. And at the same time, they're promised that God is the one who will be sanctifying them. This is amazing. It says, uh, Paul says in Philippians, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
He says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is the one who enables works of his people to be fulfilled. He prepares them beforehand, and then they walk into them, and it's the Spirit who does that. So James' audience, having perhaps heard these commands, having heard this message, they're neglecting all these things, and James calls them spiritual adulteresses. They're heading in the wrong direction. They seem to think that everyone else should be more sanctified in order to solve the world's problems. But they're doing so without first addressing addressing their own precious idols. These are Christians. And guess how God deals with this? Grace. He gives them he gives them the business. But in verses 5 through 6, he gives grace. Your sins are many, James says, but God gives more grace. God is full of grace, and he's faithful to forgive sin. All these sins of these people. He saves his own and keeps them until the end. He gives grace enough to save their soul, both forever and now from their present sins. And this is great news. God doesn't leave us in our sin general or in our sins particular. The blood, the blood of Christ both justifies us, prepares us for the last day, and also sanctifies us. He makes us clean. Jesus wins in the end, and so we can follow him and fight. Not like sinners, not with tools of the flesh, but like those who follow Christ who is one. Did we on our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Who's that? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And he has won the battle. The gospel is victory proclamation over all sin. Christ, uh, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So those in Christ may go over the rail for a while, but in the end, before the end... He hauls them back aboard. So our backsliding, our self-deception, all these things don't invalidate our true union with Christ. It is a covenant seal. He gives greater grace. And so when we are fighting sin, we're fighting with his strength, not with the factions, not with the bickering, not with the tools of the flesh. And when we're building, we're building his house. A house divided will not stand. And God is the one who's building his house, brick by brick. And who are we to sledgehammer it when the time comes? This is what it means when it says, God opposes, he scorns the proud, but gives grace to the humble, in verse 6. It's a citation from Proverbs 3. So when the house of God is being built, and someone is sledgehammering away at it with factions, with divisiveness, that just illustrates that uh, they're not in a, if, if they're a Christian believer, they're not in a place to receive grace. Haughty, stiff-necked repentance 
isn't ready, isn't fit to receive grace. No thanks. What about those people? They're sledgehammering. And God opposes that. But God has saved us. But we know that acting saved isn't automatic. It doesn't happen super instantly. It happens supernaturally. He supplied us tools to use for us to see our sin for what it is, to fight it, and to build his church. So the point is that these people are to these people that James is addressing, they're supposed to be addressing their own sin first, so that they can be building up the church. You fight your own sin first. Uh down south, high school and college football are really big. One thing that the coaches, I never played football, but I always heard them saying to the people playing football, they would say, get your feet right. You have to get your feet right before you can do anything else. It's similar to the principle of removing the log from your own eye and then addressing the speck in your brother's eye. See, these people were neglecting the order. They were trying to address the external without first addressing the internal. But Christ has defeated sin, both external and internal. God gives grace to the humble, and this grace unifies and builds up the men that it's given to. Man may lay the bricks, we're given the tools, we cut them out, we stack them, but God is the one who's building the house. So, again, these these Christians, they're independent-minded, they're zealous, they're focused on the eternal. Their problem isn't in identifying the sins around them. Their problem is in addressing them correctly. So the principal cause in the unity of Christ is addressing is addressing the sin correctly. It's applying the grace of Christ, which he's given us in all the heavenlies, to one another. So God gives grace to individual sinners, and we apply it to one another. Perhaps in rebuke, perhaps in admonition and encouragement, perhaps in teaching and instruction, but God gives grace uh, God gives grace for us to be able to address our own sin first before addressing the sins of those around us. So you have all these independent Christians in James's day. They're kind of going all different directions. They're identifying the issues, but they're not responding to them correctly. And he tells them how to respond correctly. It's in principled submission to God, which he unpacks in verses 7 through 10. You understand grace, he says, but do you live in it? He asks, or rather tells them that they're not. (laughs) And so we see in verses 7 through 10 what principled submission looks like. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, it says. Rachel and I have been listening to a podcast recently about a pastor from around here who's a liar, a bully, egotistical maniac. And sadly, this sort of thing just happens in the church sometimes. It does, and it, you know, it has to be dealt with, and we don't always deal with it correctly, but God is still faithful. And for all of his gifts in clarity and zeal, he had a ton of problems. And everyone in his orbit seems to have a story about it, whether true or not, it seems. And the journalist analyzing 
this particular guy, says that he's not, he, he should have submitted somewhere along the way to an elder at a different church. He should have submitted to a big-name evangelical guy so he could balance out that zeal and not be such a jerk. But he didn't, and of course he flamed out. I think the problem with this journalist's suggestion is that submitting to the big names ultimately wouldn't have fixed anything if he wasn't first submitting to God and then second submitting to his appointed elders, the people around him. So the journalist was calling not for principled submission, but for just an empty, let's put a Band-Aid on it, submission. An empty submission is just spineless compliance when you boil it down. It's like, wear the thing, and you're like, okay. We've heard men try to make arguments for this. Wear the thing. Okay. No. Um, Principled submission is the acknowledgement that Christ is Lord over every single area of your life. And he has full right to tell you what to do in every area of your life, all of your relationships. Principled submission seeks God's will for your life and allows him to define the terms. He says, love your neighbor, and you ask what that means, and you see it spelled out explicitly and implicitly across all of Scripture. Now, we've tried to take the phrase, love your neighbor, and make it into a, uh, you know, some sort of political entity, but we shouldn't become embittered to that phrase. Love your neighbor is a, James calls it a good and glorious thing. It's a royal law, he says. And loving, loving your neighbor is part of principled submission to Christ. Principled submission seeks maturity in the faith, not mere compliance. So principled submission, I say again, James, is the answer, uh, James says is the answer to the visible disunity that these people have. They need to apply the grace that God has shown, the, the grace that God has given them to the brother that God has given them. So he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, he goes on. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, verses 7 and 8. See, Satan first tempts and then he resorts to violence. He's first subtle and sneaky. And then uh, when things start to go badly, that's when, you know, that's when things get really bad. That's when the dragon shows up. Genesis 1, you have the serpent in the garden proclaiming lies, forked tongue. Then at the very end, Revelation, when uh, defeat is imminent, you see him sort of rearing the ugly head as the beast. It's a biblical pattern. So he first tempts, and then he resorts to violence. He knows our frame. He knows our passions. He knows fallen human nature, because he's the one who tempted Adam, pushed him over the edge, so to speak, although Adam was culpable. So because he knows our nature, he tempted Eve, the weaker vessel, in order to get to Adam. He tempted Christ in the desert when Christ was hungry and weak. He is shrewd, persistent, and petty, and we are to resist him. But you can't resist him without knowing what you're about. You can't resist him without being built up on the rock. You can't resist him without knowing your principles. And without the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't resist him unless you're in Christ. And that's why we're supposed to draw near to God instead. He goes on, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
So we draw near to God so that we can tame our own passions and give Satan no opportunity. But we also draw near to God for another reason. For instance, Psalm 85 says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Draw near to God and steadfast and draw near to God and righteousness and peace kiss each other. But righteousness and peace don't kiss each other in the evil man. They only kiss within the man who has first said what the psalmist says. Let me hear what God the Lord will say. God saves those who fear him and listen for his voice, calling upon him, turning to him in repentance and faith, and asking for his help in cultivating righteousness. These are what it means to draw near to God. Next, in the second part of uh, verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Pretty strong language. But it's language drawn up from the Old Testament. Clean your hands. Wash your hands and clean your hearts, outside and inside. This is from all over the Old Testament. I'll pick a uh, quotation from Isaiah just to illustrate it. In the first chapter of Isaiah, God says to Israel, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Wash your hands. External deeds. Then further down in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 22, he addresses their hearts their double-mindedness. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Their motivations were mixed. The wine of, thank you, Lord, was corrupted with, that I'm not like that man. And their actions played this all out. So the people of Israel in Isaiah's day were up to their, their elbows in idolatry, moral problems, ethical issues, and James is taking God's words to them and applying them to the first century Christians in his own day. How does that work? Well, we don't control the direction of the Roman Empire. We're being persecuted by them. How can the national sins of Israel apply to us? That was the Old Testament. See, they might, they might have thought that their hands were clean, but James uses the text from Isaiah to evaluate their situation. Their hands are not clean. Their hearts are not pure. Even though they're not calling the shots in the state, James still calls them to be faithful in the way that they can, which is the relationship uh, with Christ primarily, and then to those around them. Their personal standing before God their obedience to God, their principled submission to God. Psalm 24 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall draw near? And who shall stand in his holy place? It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 
It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Next, James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Therefore, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says this in verse 9. Now we have to remember, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. These Christians here, they're committing evil acts and then they're rejoicing in it. They're laughing at their own sins. Instead of the sins, well, they're laughing at their own sins instead of repenting of them. They've made them light by reducing them to a difference of preference. Their sins are a joke to them. And also, when they see people around them sinning, their sins are a joke as well. Don't we do this? We've got a new mask mandate around the corner. Look how scared everyone is at Trader Joe's. Ha, ha, ha. But they fear their gods more than we fear ours. Now, there's a difference between tyrants and the people who are genuinely afraid. They are culpable for their own fear. That's definitely an important aspect. And the people who simply are cowering are who James is talking about. These are the people who are self-deceived. And so James is saying we should seek to win them with arguments, with cheerful attitudes, with opposing their nonsense for the sake of Christ. Not because they're anti-government, but because to the to. But because Christ's government will have no end. They're not anti-government; they're pro Christ's government, which will have no end. And so the question he has for their resistance, for all their quarreling, for all their factions is what is this resistance plugged into? Not necessarily how is it playing out, but what is it plugged into? It has to be plugged into principled submission to Christ. They have to be weeping also for the suffering sinner. Now, this might seem like a tall order. It's a big ask. But think about it. Christ wept in front of Jerusalem when she was about to be destroyed for her sin. Jerusalem deserved it. They killed all kinds of babies. Their rulers were super corrupt. But he wept for their sin. And to those who were at the bottom, he showed compassion. He went around healing the sick, not the healthy. Christ saves sinners, those who will humble themselves. And so we follow Christ in both dying to our own sin, the way that he died, and also in compassionate mourning for the suffering sinner. He's shown you grace, he's given you grace, and now you can distribute grace to those around you. Dying like this, it is dying, I assure you, it is difficult. Dying like this is exactly what Christians were made for. It doesn't mean you lose sight of the hope you have. It doesn't mean that you lose sight of your your own personal liberties. It doesn't mean that you lose sight of the last day when you'll give an account. But dying like this is actually the hope of the nations. When you're mourning your sin, when you're turning from it to Christ, when you're applying his balm to others and giving them the gospel, this is the hope of the nations. It's humiliation and then glory. It's cross and then crown. And Christ is the one who showed us this way when he died, descended into hell, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
So I've said principled submission over and over again because it's in laying down our lives that we keep them. And this is what James is all about in this section. Principled submission is the road to glory and exaltation. Maybe not in this life, but in the one to come, or ones to come for you and your children, for all of you Presbyterians out there. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you, it says in verse 10. If you were to merely count up all the words in this passage of condemnation versus all the words of grace that James has, that gives us, you'd be totally condemned and without hope. I've given, I've given you a huge laundry list of just, you know, things to do. And it's like, man, that's burning pretty hot. Do this, stop that. But James and his way of writing is pretty skilled. I wrote sneaky. The word is very skilled. He's, he's a skilled writer. He knows what he's about. You have to pay close attention to what he's actually saying without getting bogged down in all the strong rhetoric. You have to understand what it says. So you don't count the words, you weigh them. And when you weigh the words, you see that the grace of God tows the whole load. God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. That is good news. Amen? God's grace is greater than our sin, and it motivates us to action. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He exalts the one who would come to him humble and broken. It's those who die to sin whom he also raises to new life. And we submit to him because he's commanded us to, but also he's given us good reason, because in the end, he will lift us up. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. He could have just left it at that, but he gives the reason. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. Cross and then crown. So, that's the text. That's what's going on underneath the hood. The question is, where do we go? How do we use this text? If we want visible unity in the church, for one thing then we have to get to the bottom of it by first repenting of our own sin and then addressing only then the sins of others. So we live in a time, though, when it's easy to be isolated or closed off. (laughs) Easy. It might be required to be isolated. We're living in a time when it's easy to be isolated, to cut yourself off from the people around you, to live life through a screen, and to think that all the problems in your life are just from out there. But we have to address the sins in our own hearts and in our own camp. Here at this church, we have a lot of strong households and a lot of independent spirits, which it, sound like, it sounded like I was trying to throw under the bus earlier. I'm not trying to throw the strong households, the strong convictions of this church under the bus. That would be the opposite of the point. This is a strength that God has given this church. It's a good thing. It just needs to head in the right direction. So, people of those families, I would exhort you to think about those things. Use your family for the good and the upbuilding of the church. Continue in doing that. Many of you are doing that.
the way, the reason that you can do that, the reason and the way, well, the only basis of you being able to do that is because Christ has given you the tools to build a stable and balanced community. True unity is built on Christ, and Christ has given you himself. You're able to build well and to build upon the principled submission that you have to him. Sinful passions don't get to run the show. Unity is a winnable prize because it's a, Christ, a prize that Christ has won. And that's why the point of this passage is that we have peace with God. It's purchased with Christ. And peace with God inevitably leads to peace among men. So God has given us grace, which we can reflect to those around us, even as we actively speak against and oppose their sin. So we should remember that we can't do any of this without his help. He saved us from the grave, and he's cleaning us up to present us one day to the throne, before the throne of grace with great joy one day. He will exalt those who humble themselves before him. God is the one who gets the credit and the glory. So the question that we should each be asking ourselves, the question that I have had to ask myself is, do I want a strong local church? Do I want a balanced community? Do I want a healthy republic? Do I want to be able to exercise my liberties? Yes, I want these as badly as you guys do. But where are these things on the pecking order? Do we want any of these things without Christ? That would be pointless. See, unless we're building these things on the rock, we're building a skyscraper, as beautiful as it may be, on swamp water. But we have Christ. We've been given a rock. We can use our facilities. We can use the things that God has given us to build well. Christ has forgiven your sins. It's the same God who scorns the wicked, who also gathers his scattered people to him like a mother hen. He is compassionate and good. He is building his church, even now. In the midst of all of our shortcomings, he is nonetheless building the church. And we have, uh, he's building the church and we're being sanctified. He is sanctifying her for the last day. And we have peace with God, and so we should draw near to him through Christ, who will lift us up on the last day. And on that day, the church will be finally enjoyed like good, mature wine. It's that end that we're striving to. It's that end that Christ has given us the means to accomplish. Not in our own strength, but on his. So let's pray and worship to that end. Our God and Father, we ask that you would uh, bind these words to our heart, help us to understand them, help us to apply them to our lives, and help us to just grow in you and to keep our eyes on the hope of glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen.